Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and joining me today is Victoria Robinson for a discussion about Before Jim Crow, America's Slave Codes and Black Laws. Now, it is essential when attempting to trace enslaved ancestors that you become familiar with the laws of each pertinent state or territory regarding the institution of slavery. Without such a survey of the laws, valuable information can often be overlooked. Knowledge of laws and their associated records can alert the researcher to more obscure sources of information. Victoria Robinson is an experienced genealogist and graduate of Georgetown University. For nearly 30 years, she has worked as a senior librarian at the Annandale, Virginia Family History Center, where she assists patrons and staff with their research and serves as the staff expert in African American genealogy. She has presented at various local and national genealogy history conferences over the past 19 years on the topics of research methodology and using various strategies to uncover African-American family history and genealogy. So let me just give a warm welcome to Victoria Robinson. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you, Bernice. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm glad to have you. So let's just start off with America's Slave Codes. Tell us about these codes and exactly when did they begin. Okay, yes, America's Slave Codes. Um, the Slave Codes and Black Laws, um, <clears throat> and I, I'm looking at the period of time pre, uh, predating uh, Reconstruction. So when, um, for most people in the South, most people of color, it was the slave codes, um, but those for free people were called the black codes, the black laws. And they've been around since this country's been around. Um, There have always been um, ways to address uh, 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 and how to treat and people of color in, within the context, the legal context of what's going on in that community, in that state, in that county. 
And so they've been around for the longest time. I know that some of them in the state of Virginia um, date as early as like 1622. Uh, these laws deal with things as um, um, dealing with the racial makeup, the admixture of an individual, and what that meant for their their identity. Something um, most of us are familiar with the laws that said that if you're that the uh, condition of the child is based on the condition of the mother at birth. And whether that child was white or black, but if the mother were enslaved, then the child were enslaved. Um, that's the where the institutionalization of a lot of these these codes um, came from and drew from. Is that how do we treat and deal with um, um, differences in people and differences in stature in, in time and place? So give us some what you would consider some very specific examples of the codes. Now you did mention. Uh, the code of the condition of the the birth, if the child was born, even if the father was the enslaver and the mother was of African ancestry, that child would follow the status of the mother. But let's talk about some other codes that were put in place uh, during, as you said, as early as the 1600s. Tell us about some of those codes, and you can start with Virginia. Okay, and I'm most familiar with Virginia because that's where I got my start um, accidentally into understanding and, and finding the need to understand about the various black codes and what were created. But some of those um, uh, slave codes, um, for example, in 1705 in the state of Virginia, which included West Virginia, we must remember that because West Virginia did not become a state till um, 1862, I think. Um, they had said that all servants imported and brought into the country who were not Christians in their native country shall be accounted and be slaves. All Negro, mulatto, and Indian slaves within this dominion, again, it's Virginia, shall be held to be real estate. So therefore, you had the, the designation of, of, of Negroes, mulattoes, and Indian slaves to become chattel property, became um, property. If any slave resists his master, correcting such slave, and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free of all punishment, as if such accident never occurred. So then, then that at the same time, those that, in that same year, the law um, um, indemnified the enslavers from their actions with the enslaved. That's one example. Um, and then they, let's see, I'm looking at um, the creation of penitentiary and segregated slave courts in 1800. I bring those up. They seem like obscure, uh, you know, so what if they had segregated uh, slave courts? But then you have to think about the kind of records that were created by such a law. And that there can then help you find some information that may not be available elsewhere. Uh, would you like me to go on with a couple more? Yes, please. And then I want to just talk about, well, some of the records, because as you mentioned uh, the various laws, well, obviously they're written somewhere, but then how would the, it help the uh, genealogists when they are actually trying to find their ancestors within the context of what that law is saying? Okay. All right, I'll give an example. Uh, 1757, uh, that's when mm -hmm. in Virginia declared that gifts of slaves must be by will, deed, or testament proved by at least two witnesses in writing and recorded. Okay, this was enacted to prevent heirs from defrauding creditors, all that kind of stuff. And so from a standpoint of the genealogist, looking for a will, 
and you're having at least two witnesses to that um, to that will in the in the uh, the records allow uh, provide for genealogists to potentially find um, relatives as to, as to who might have been freed. You're trying to figure out why my ancestor was um, no longer enslaved by a certain time. They, you want to find out who their previous enslaver was. You might be able uh-huh. to find that they were, had been freed as a deed of, of, of uh, in the will or uh, an actual deed of gift, um, and that's recorded in court. So you, in those records, you find the date of the sale, often the slave's name, their age, and their sex. And sometimes you'll see family groupings, and you can end up finding parents for individuals. So that's an example of how using uh, that law might help. Um, Another one is that uh, in 1783, they declared free of all slaves who were enlisted by their owners to serve as substitutes for free persons in the Revolutionary War. So there's going to be a record, court records, deed records, and will books which might reveal the role of an ancestor that might have played in the Revolutionary War. Again, that can help you identify a bit of, uh, you know, your ancestor who might have been, in, um, might have been freed and no longer enslaved, but you're trying to find out how do I move that next generation back. And such um, knowledge of such laws and the kind of records that were created can help you kind of say, oh, this person here was um, uh, freed in, um, uh, because he had served in, in lieu of his, um, his uh, enslaver in the Revolutionary War. Um, I have found the use of these laws to help me build out my um, the family tree, if you will, of, and, and find out the story behind my third great grandparents' um, manumission, escape, and 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 and, and, and capture and trials um, around um, in the mid 1800s here in Loudoun County, Virginia. Um, through these laws, of these laws, I found um, that starting in the early 1800s, Virginia required the tax person to go and do a census, if you will, every year of all the free um, people of color in the county uh-huh. and post that list to the to the courthouse door. Sadly, a lot of those lists don't exist, but you might stumble upon them when you're actually going through the books in the, in the local courthouse and you might find a census of free Negroes for um, 1831. Um, and I have found individuals who had been enslaved as my ancestor and freed at the same time, they were listed still living in the county 10 years later, and they were in that um, annual tax census. So it's, it's been a, it's a great way to find um, more information about your family. It, it really is. And as I listen to you and you, you know, basically – name some of the dates of which some of these laws uh, went into effect. What happened and what kind of laws were you able to find following, let's say, Nat Turner, the rebellion? Uh, What changes took place and how would you find additional laws and your ancestors and records based on rebellions and runaway slaves and the capture of those slaves and what have you. Yes. Um, there are various laws. Um, for example, in 1832, that's post-Nat um, post Turner, um, Virginia declared that uh, prevented free Negroes from acquiring ownership except by descent to any slave other than his or her husband, wife, and children. So, you know, mm-hmm. we hear people talk about, oh, yeah, um, Black people held slaves as well. But knowing that in Virginia, after 1832, a, black, a free black could only have um, 
um, ownership of a husband, wife, or children. So that mm-hmm. can help you create and identify a family grouping. Um, then you have, um, you know, where whereby they are registering, you have to actually register free Negroes, um, the manumissions um, of, 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 of newly um, freed individuals, have to be registered by a court order, thus creating an actual record that people can go in and see um, who, um, when that person might have been, in, uh, who might have enslaved that person, um, if they were part of a larger group of individuals who were freed at the same time, and, and, and what was the mechanism that caused that. Um, there are, of course, much later laws that dealt with the creation of the um, patty rollers, as, they, um, as I remember hearing as I was growing up, where they went and were given permission and granted authority to go after and, and bring back um, runaway slaves. And I know that a lot of them crossed into free states, such as um, in Ohio, where my ancestor, um, Nelson T. Gant, was actually living with his wife and family. They had been there for a good 10 years. And the Patty Rollers rolled into town looking for some escaped um, um, slaves in Zanesville, Ohio, the middle of the state. And mm-hmm. some um, protests that occurred um, that were attended and supported by both free blacks and whites in that town to prevent and protect, to pre- prevent the capture of uh, the couple of individuals who were on their way up the, um, in the Underground Railroad into, into the further north. Uh, my ancestor, Nelson, he and his wife um, served as um, uh, undergra- um, conductors informally on the Underground Railroad um, that passed through that area in, um, in Zanesville, Ohio. He was a, a far- uh, what do you call it, a, far- a road farmer, um, and he would haul his crops. And he had a false bottom on his uh, wagon, and he would hide the um, some runaways in the bottom of that false bottom of that um, cart, and he would just go on his on his duty and just go to the next town and a couple more towns, and then he let them out in the next to the next conductor, and um, and all along he would be passing by folks who were looking for these individuals who had been in who had been emboldened and authorized by state laws such as in Virginia and West Virginia to um, to retake those individuals well just listening to you share uh, share the heroic efforts of your ancestors under the underground railroad uh, raises a, another question as to where did you get that information and uh, tell us you know the impact it had on you and your family once you uh, discovered the the role that your family played in the underground railroad okay um i had always heard stories and stuff like that growing up and um it wasn't until i was pretty much right out of college and luckily in the dc area and then i decided to go ahead and try to find some um find some proof of the stories i'd heard my grandmother always told the story about nelson gant and i have to admit after i finally did a lot of my research pretty much almost everything my grandmother told me was true i was very very lucky and blessed that way but i went and complete neophyte went to the courthouse in loudon county virginia and decided let me go ahead and see if i can find his manumission records and i was very very blessed again i walked in here's a book you know they handed it to me and and in, and in 10 minutes i had both he and his wife's manumission records. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon not being able to find anything. 
But I was very lucky that I ran across and became very good friends with individuals who understood records, both for whites and blacks in Loudoun County, and they took me under their wing. And they showed Uh me that, oh, you're trying to find out more information about X. They directed me towards stuff, and I started learning more about the records. But then I'm like, well, why were they collecting these records? And I found out about there was a law that created. And somebody Uh handed me a book by um, Miss Purcell. It was written in like 1932, 1936, where she actually summarized all the black laws of Virginia. And mm-hmm. um, I bought myself a copy of that book because it's so, so good that literally lists all the laws and what it meant and the kind of records that were created. And then that made me like, wow, I actually can go ahead and find information. Like, why was he brought back? Why was, why was part of the trial started in D.C. and, in, and con- concluded in in Virginia, how that happened, learning about the extradition records, going to that they had to be extradited by the governor, going to the to the library of Virginia and actually finding the extradition order. I mean, I was blown away because I've been looking for that for years, but I was blown away. And when I told the story and wrote a couple of blog posts about this, the family who had heard tidbits here and there, they were like, wow, this is amazing. Because you know, we'd heard it, but to find out that this is really true, how many people actually, like, you hear the stories about your ancestor, and you're like, how much of this is made up? But the fact that this was really true, you know, it all made us stand up a little, an inch taller in, 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 in how we felt about what our ancestors had gone through, and what they did, and how they had set the tone for their descendants in a lot of different ways. And it made us appreciate what it was that they put forward for us. And for us, to, and it's now for us to carry on to the next generation. So it's been um, seven generations. They first sent the um, they sent the first generation of kids in our family to college, and they and to have graduated. And we've now have six continuous generations of college graduates in our family line. And it's because we we've, we've taken to heart what it means, what what those ancestors had done for for us and the family and for our, the community in general. So, yeah, it, it, it's just blow, mind-blowing for all out of us. Right, and I could just hear the pride in your voice uh, to know uh, and to have found this information. But what you have also said was that it was important to understand the laws and that yes. you found a resource that really broke down the various laws. And, you know, one of the things, when we're into African-American genealogy, you'll hear people saying, oh, go, or I've actually seen this. I didn't just hear it. I've seen it. Go to the slave schedule. And that, But that's not really where we are right now. When we're talking about African-American genealogy, you have to understand some of the laws that were created, which had a direct impact on the movement and the life of individuals that were enslaved. And so I'm really happy that you are able to share with us and even encourage folks to study the laws. Can you give us some resources? Where would you tell people to start looking? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, when I first started uh, doing the actual real research, whatever, one of the messages that was always told to me and above taken to heart is that, you know, we need to place our ancestors by your name 
in place and time. And, uh-huh. you know, so I was originally taught, you know, understand what's going on in the community of the time that your ancestor might have been living in, okay? So it's not only just, just in general nationally what's going on, all you know, the reconstruction, you know, you'll have national, you know, Jim Crow stuff. What does it mean locally? And what does it mean to that person in your family? And so understanding this idea about um, um, learning what those laws are can help you place a person in place and time. And so some of the resources are, I have found that there are many individuals, a lot of academics have written either masters or doctoral theses or other um, reasons for, they have drafted and developed um, <clears throat> documents or books that were published that um, went through the black codes or the slave codes, black laws um, in individual states. And that includes free states, like for example, Ohio, I can't remember the name of the book, but I stumbled upon that where it talked about um, being black in, in Ohio and from, you know, the beginning of the state um, uh, initiation. And they and the book talks about what the, the black laws were and how it had an impact on black life in that area. And, and, and I was quite surprised where in the footnote I found a reference to my Nelson Gantt. They were in Ohio, and there was a reference to you know, the, the whole color, um, the colorism issue in terms of light skin versus dark skin. And they mentioned my ancestors within the context of that. Um, so then there's other, uh, Virginia, they have a book that actually called, you know, The Black Code um, of Virginia. Um, so mm-hmm. you can Google these things. Um, and I know that on the, is a Wikipedia that gives you some selected black laws um, in um, various states. Now, a lot of them, when they say black laws tend to, or black code, they're tending to think um, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, that kind of stuff. But going through deeper and looking at uh, academic institutions to find um, actual um, uh, documents that have been created, that's one of my goals this year. I've told myself I'm going to actually, on my blog eventually, put a list for every state where they might be able to find a resource. Um, But in the meantime... You know, Google, that's your best friend. And Googling, you know, black codes, slave codes, you might want to start with slave codes to narrow it down, um, and Virginia or whatever, and, and see what pops up in your Google search. Because that is really um, one of the best ways to find that information. And then when you have an wow. academic who's done the study of it, it tends to show they've actually put it in the context, each of the laws. They've written the context for it. And often mention what kind of records that might have been associated with it. Okay, and and I'm glad you emphasized we're talking about before Jim Crow because Correct. we have a whole new set of black codes that came up after Reconstruction. And during Reconstruction yes. and then furthermore Jim Crow, all the Jim Crow laws, and, and people may be even more familiar with those laws, but what we're talking about is before Jim Crow and the need to understand those laws. And you're right, Google is your friend. I mean, get in there, start (laughs) looking for those books. Uh, Go to Hiatus Mm -hmm. Trust, uh, even Family Search. Uh, See what they may have on their wiki. Uh, And perhaps, you know, there may be resources that we haven't even tapped into yet. But Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. You know, there are so many of those out there. Because there might have been records created at the time 
that the law was in place or the event occurred. But sadly, a lot of those records may no longer exist. They may not be extant. But mm-hmm. sometimes you can't find them in the county courthouse. They may be at your state archive for that county. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be buried. Literally, like I said, the, um, the, the annual censuses for uh, free Negroes living in a county in Virginia that had been nailed to the courthouse door. Mm-hmm. Some of those did not, did not last. Did not, um, you know, but some of them were just literally stuffed inside a book. In the textbook or in the court, um, the court um, um, record, okay, um, but not where you would think a census record would be. So sometimes these records are buried in places that you don't even think that they would even be um, connected to. So that's the reason why, you know, when COVID is over, people need to understand time to go to the court, county courthouse to see all the records that have not mm-hmm. been microfilmed or not been digitized so you and, and, and to see what is out there. Because there is so much that one little page, you know, I discovered um, that they had um, the Commonwealth attorney in, in, in Virginia who was assigned to Loudoun County. He was on a rampage to, to um, show the local sheriff and all those folks that they were violating the state law when it came to um, free Negroes remaining in the state more than 12 months after manumission, and how his efforts it was coinciding with the constant increase of manumissions re-registrations, which are again required by Virginia law to be re-registered every three years, and finding that information. Uh, why is there an influx all of a sudden? And then it's like it's kind of quiet for like another 10 years in, in, in the Register of Free Negroes. Finding those kind of things, understanding why these things were going on or why my ancestor was brought in and indicted by the uh, uh, courts for staying in the state for more than 12 months but managed to escape that process because he paid some tax. You know, so mm-hmm. it's all those kind of things. Were just, it's just a fascinating way to learn more about the story of our people. And as you like to say, because I've been listening to your podcast a lot, and you talk about telling the community story. And I like to think that these laws help frame the story so that you can understand yes, yes. how to um, tack on the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the siding and where to put the windows, things like that. These laws help frame that and help frame what's going on in the community and, and like. So it's definitely. Well, it's you have fun. really, I mean, the whole idea of doing this show was to stimulate people to start looking for those codes, start searching at the courthouses. Some of those records that you said, they may not not have been digitized. You may have to go to that courthouse and thank God, I hope everyone gets tested, get vaccinated, (laughs) and things open up so that you can do this. But in the meantime, Google, let Google be your friend. Look at what's going, what was going on in your state before Jim Crow so that you could put your ancestors within the context of the laws of which, unfortunately, they had to live. And, uh, but, Victoria, just do you have some parting words for us before we close out today? I know this feels like it went really quick, but that's what happens <laughs> when you're having fun. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, closing remarks. Well, I think that, um, again, I just want to reemphasize that 
Um, you know, we are told this, that we're, you know, we have a brick wall, the 1870 brick wall. And it's, I think it's important to us as we learn our, our ancestor stories wherever they may be. And is to, is to not think of, I can't get past this. What are some ways? How do I skirt around this wall? How do I climb over, build that ladder to help me climb over it? And, again, just understanding about how to put a person in place and time and understanding what the, does that mean. It goes beyond trying to find the record, searching for the record without knowing anything. But, mm-hmm. but teaching ourselves to understand what it is that we need to be knowing so that we can find a record that can go along with that. And that includes understanding, you know, um, slave codes and, and black laws, um, as well as to understanding, you know, church, local church history, you know, were, were, were there separate uh, meetings for, um, for, for blacks, uh, separate records kept for black congregants or slave congregants. And it turned out I was lucky enough that one of my ancestors, they were in Loudoun County, and I actually see records of her attending um, Sunday school, the colored Sunday school in 1840, 1842, something like that. And made and it, from that, I discovered how she met her future husband, um, because who was in her class. And those kind of things, just understanding and being open to the kinds of, of knowledge about the time our, pe- our people were living and the, 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 the good and bad things that had an impact on their lives. Right. Well, Victoria, I want to really thank you for coming on today. You talked about understanding place and time, about community, and how you have to put everything in context. And so for those of you that have been listening, go back, start digging, start studying those those laws. Start looking at those codes and think about, wait a minute, my ancestor was here at that time. This is what they lived under. And just get a better understanding of what life was like. So I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. And, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to everyone tuning in next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. Bye. Goodbye, Victoria. Bye-bye, Bernice.